in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Welcome. Hi, everyone. So, uh, for those of you that weren't here when we said hello earlier, we have a... Someone new joining us tonight. Matt James, welcome from Denver. How's it going out there? Great, great. Glad to be here. Looking forward to uh, learning with everybody. Cool. You big skier? Is that why you're in Denver? What's that? Everybody asks you if you must be, if you're a skier. Oh, no. No, I almost broke my hip a couple of years ago, and I haven't skied since, so. <laughs> it's a dangerous sport, isn't it? It can be. Yeah. Can be. So, uh, Barbara asks, uh, raised a very good question. Um, I, uh, those of you who joined us since she posted it, I wonder if you can see it. Like, let's see, Neil, Morgan, Chris, Lori. Do you guys see a uh, chat? Yeah, you'll have to repost it. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. It's not there. It's there for anyone who was here, but people, it, it's a Zoom feature or bug <laughs> that it does not um, show people who come late the things that were posted early. So question for you, Derek, you talked to us about the value in setting these texts, and I was able to appreciate that, sharpening the mind, understanding the root text better in order to delve into the nature of reality itself, emptiness, etc. So Barbara says uh, she, she understood that there's two purposes to studying these texts, sharpening the mind, in uh, Buddhist terminology, that's uh, developing prajna, and then understanding the root texts better in order to delve into the nature of reality itself. So wisdom, yeshe, uh, uh, sorry, jnana. And uh, so she says, however, sometimes when we get into the sum of the minutiae, I start to feel lost and have a sense of wanting to zoom out. Uh, since we're on Zoom, I, I like that. Pun. That was good. In order to check back into the big picture of why I'm doing this, and also I was wondering how to relate to this material in a more personal way in order to maintain the sense of relevance to the path overall. I guess what happens is at a certain point, I lose the connection between what we're studying and my meditation practice. Anybody else um, get, get lost in the minutiae at all? <laughs> Always, often. <laughs> and uh, can be uh, fun sometimes, you know. Then the problem is we can also lose the big picture. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's the, the minutiae and the big picture. So let's let's talk about the big picture. I, I think we know the minutiae. Uh, there's tons of it, and we're going through lots of it tonight. So uh, what is the big picture? I think I think you summed it up really well. The big picture is these two things: is that we're sharpening our mind, and it's and it's partially just an exercise. And uh, rather than studying um, uh, things like the number of angels that can fit on a pin or the different types of insects that exist in the world and understanding the taxonomy of the animal kingdom and all its different uh, phylum and genus, uh, genii and families and <coughs> species and so forth. What's bigger than species? Uh, spe species fit into genus? Genus? Is that a phylum. term? Phylum, family. Anyway, um, we study um, the root texts in order to better, in order to be able to understand the nature of reality empty itself. So the strategy in Buddhism is um, to identify ignorance what way are we ignorant what are we ignorant about and to learn those to learn those topics to dispel ignorance and so understanding what ignorance is what we're ignorant of and how we're ignorant and then learning so the path is uh, identifying those three things, what ignorance is, what we're ignorant of, and how we continue to be ignorant. And then identifying what wisdom is, that's the antidote to ignorance, and um, identifying what are the objects of wisdom, i.e. reality as it is. So the what are... Uh, ig ignorance is um, not knowing the true nature of reality and we're ignorant of the different aspects of that true nature of reality. The most important of those is that we're ignorant of, we're ignorant of, of, we're ignorant about, how about, <laughs> we're ignorant about the nature of the uh, about selflessness and emptiness which we're told are the two aspects of reality and in what way do we maintain that moment to moment and um, over the long term and it's helpful to look at things in those two ways it's like over the course of like uh, a year or a lifetime how do we maintain our ignorance? And how do we maintain our ignorance uh, in the moment? How does ignorance continue? And over a lifetime, ignorance is uh, continued primarily by the uh, very powerful forces of uh, karma and klesha. Klesha are the root uh, um, diversions, attachment, aggression, stupidity. And karma is the momentum of those. Always wanted to be preoccupied. Always seeking the next thing. Always uh, 
wanting entertainment and so forth. And um, so that's over the long haul, over the period of uh, a week, a month, a day, an hour. But what happens moment to moment is that we um, experience our conceptual world as if it were real. And that's the most important thing. So we experience the structured conceptual framework as if it were correct. And that framework has a subject that's me, and it has objects that we believe are out there in the way that we think of them. So the strategy of the path is to identify the, um, I said, the what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing non-conceptually the nature of reality. It's knowing the aspects of that reality being the way conceptuality happens, the way that we maintain conceptuality on in the short term, moment to moment, and over time, how karma works, how patterns, how habitual patterns work, how our minds work, how interactions with people work, how we cultivate goodness in ourselves and in our relationships and in our worlds, and how we tame our mind and train our mind so that our mind doesn't get in the way of the development of wisdom, of understanding the absence of self and the absence of es of essential um, existence or intrinsic reality in all phenomena. And in particular, wisdom is knowing moment by moment that there's the conceptual reality that our senses create and that we buy into and that there's another whole option, plan B. And so um, this study, a lot of it is, is purely sharpening the mind in order to pierce through the bubble of ignorance. We have to clarify our mind and develop a really sharp mind. And uh, so we, we understand the categories and of uh, the nature of our world. We understand how they interact with each other, and we understand um, how they can be structured in an ontological hierarchy or a hierarchy that's helpful for understanding, i.e. in terms of terminology or in terms of function. And so we learn lots of stuff. And instead of learning about the nature of samsara, we learn about the nature of um, non-conceptual reality and how conceptual reality branches off from that. So moment by moment is seeing, is uh, using that sharpened intellect of prajna to see what's going on here. I and buying into the belief that I'm a subject perceiving visual input, auditory input. I'm hearing auditory, you're hearing auditory input from me, I'm hearing it as well from my vocal cords doing whatever they do to generate the sound. And we've all agreed upon 
uh, that sounds have certain sounds have certain meanings. And so we hear these sounds and we immediately associate them in our mind and they go into the vast web of our associative network that associates meanings and contexts and implications all within the con all within the framework of our conceptual agenda. And so there's this sort of twofold process in our study here. One is we look at these lists and these topics as objects in order to pure, uh, in order to sharpen our intellect, our prajna. And we also look at the way that we're understanding these topics and any topics that we encounter from the kitchen sink and the different ingredients that we might use to cook a meal to uh, the various people in our world, the letters on a keyboard, the thoughts in our mind as we meditate. So then when we come to the meditation cushion and we look at our experience, we ask who's meditating, who's having thoughts, what, where, what are thoughts? And um, one of the main uh, strategies of ignorance is to create the feeling that there's oneness, that there's entities that are made up of different parts, but they come together, they inhere as an entity that has parts. It helps us simplify our world by thinking of things as being uh, structured together as different entities. So there's a table. Instead of thinking, oh, there's like all these different pieces of cellulose or whatever it is, we think table. We think computer. We think person. And so our, our meditation practice is a matter of uh, sort of a lassoing our mind, getting our mind to settle down to the point where we can be clear about our thinking process. And we all become ideally familiar with our thinking process over time. What are the sort of things I think about and why? Why do I dwell on the things that I think about? And the, the familiarity of them should become a trigger. Uh, 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 an alarm. Oh, right. I'm thinking my usual thoughts. And instantaneously we let go. And we, we flash on the understanding that our world is a conceptual fabrication, which we've learned in great detail in this course and many other courses of study or avenues of study that we pursue on the path. And uh, it's said in many different sources, the more detail that you have, the more granularity that you pursue in the understanding of the artificial nature of the world, the deeper your ability to flash on the uncreated, unconditioned nature of our true being. So over and over again, they say, if we just, if we just say to you, oh, your, your experience is conceptual. Try to experience non-conceptuality. It's not very easy. 
you need to go in detail what what is the conceptual mind and how does it work and what is its objects and what is the different ways that it perceives those objects and then all of them become reminders as we experience them so we hear sound and we can simultaneously ideally hear the echo of emptiness that there's just noises that really have no meaning the meaning is in here we attach the meaning to the movement of lips and um, vocal cords anyone else what, what other thoughts that people have jill chime in please Thank, thank you. Actually, this was very helpful because um, I was struggling a little bit uh, with the four reliances um, because um, when I'm introduced to a concept in Buddhist studies, I then start to use direct perception to try to create semantic space to define the concept. So even when even something as difficult to conceptualize as a bumi, right? Or shunyata or something, you know, like, but I start creating, and I was going to speak on that because to, I was going to ask about that tonight because, um, because in the four reliances, I find that when I'm introduced in a text to a, a new concept, I start conceptualizing, right? I start building up using, trying to use my direct perception or my inference, et cetera, from direct to try to understand it. And so I really appreciated what you just said because it is the world of conceptualization, right? And so um, so I just, I just wanna ding, 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 <laughs> because it was something I was uh, thinking about during the reading this week. That's great. Thank you. And the four reliances are a key sort of indication of why I do all this is we're trying to understand the, the, the meaning, not the words and the uh, import, uh, uh, regardless of how it's dated. You know, that's that's one of our tasks is flexibility, particularly we're receiving this information uh, secondhand or sometimes thirdhand in terms of it coming from two different one or two different languages away and so we have to have flexibility about the translation of terms and that adds a, another opportunity for uh, developing prajna and uh, when we encounter terms and try to compare them to translations of terms that we've encountered before and say is this a different translation of the same term or are we encountering a different term a different concept and then most importantly, the last two uh, reliances of the four reliances, the first two being uh, rely on the uh, words, uh, sorry, rely on the message, not the messenger, rely on the meaning and not the specific words, and then rely on the definitive meaning and not the provisional meaning. And we'll see in the text tonight that the way they uh, way it's uh, explained in the text tonight is that the provisional meaning was taught to specific students or people that the Buddha encountered. 
And it's not only about the Buddha's teachings, but it's about the commentaries upon them. And uh, there's, there's teachings that are geared directly to specific students, much like a doctor will prescribe things specific to a certain pa patient. And then there's universal statements that are um, the true teachings of the Buddha, regardless of the situation and the context and the recipient and so forth. And those are the definitive teachings. It's not clear always which are which. And you know, why didn't the Buddha? Uh, wasn't he? Why wasn't he clear and consistent about that? That's a, a major complaint I would like to lodge against. <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and the same goes for Trump Rinpoche. He said a lot of differing things at various times, and he taught, for example, Vipassana. It was notoriously unclear and different ways of teaching it in different contexts. And, and uh, you know, uh, who knows what the reasons were, but it, it uh, forces us to cultivate our passion and really, you know, do the old blacksmith thing with the gold and hammer it and really try to figure it out. And in that process, we're, we're clarifying our mind. We're getting very precise in our mind so that in our mind we're able to see the difference between different types of thoughts we're able to understand the difference between the experience of a sense perception so what we experience is our, our senses what's going on and from the buddhist point of view of the structure of mind is that the sixth consciousness is perceiving directly the consciousness of the visual sense world or datu let's say an object a color gets reflected into the eye and the eye generates an image of that outer phenomena and then the sixth consciousness experiences that color directly without conception and then those you know these are happening at the uh, many millimeters, uh, thousandths of a second sort of level, right? And then the uh, associative part of the sixth consciousness says, oh, red or blue or, you know, and, and that's even sort of subconscious. Like when we perceive objects, we become conscious when it's like the combined object, like the car, you know, but originally we see red, black, tire, door, top, fen, you know, fender, we see all these different pieces and then we put the label on it and we structure our world. And that happens instantaneously. So can you like right now, like look around your room and have the sensation that your mind is experiencing the input from your visual system and it's looking at the outer world through these through a little aperture projected onto a screen it's like you're in a submarine you know how the submarines they put up the telescope tell us is that what it's called periscope periscope thank you periscope up you know in the movie and the periscope goes up above the water and looks around and it sees a little picture of the world and then like oh 
big whale eye, you know, looking at you, or like, <laughs> or like you know, a Russian submarine, or you know, or iceberg. And you know, so we're down here. We're getting this little picture. We don't realize that it's a little picture. Our eyes give us a slice of the possible colors, uh, you know, light rays, realms in the world. Um, and we see like, we don't see atoms and molecules and pixels and stuff. We see, you know, like when things get to be, uh, a, you know, a hundredth of a centimeter or something, we, we can see it. But we can't see things beyond a certain granularity. And, and we think that that's, that's what's here. And instead, see if you can just for a moment think like, I'm a brain in a, in a tank. And um, I open my, you know, close your eyes and then open your eyes. And it's like, oh, the camera is on or the periscope is op up. And we take in what we take in. And, you know, we know that the periscope has a blind spot, right? It has a blind spot right there on each eye. And we fill it in. Which is a very good reminder that, you know, we create this image where the fovea, where all the, the retinal nerves leave the retina in the, in the fovea, out the fovea into the retinal, the optic nerve. There's no perception of color or, or shape. And we just fill it in. So, um, uh, all of this is uh, an exercise for two purposes. One is to sharpen our our mind, to be precise about what we experience and how we experience it. And then the second thing is understanding the nature of reality. And um, the nature of reality begins with the players in reality, subjects and objects. And ideally, we follow the lines of reasoning and find them to be accurate in their portrayal of the, um, the story about there being a, a belief in a self, that colors are very every moment of perception and experience as the reference point, as the referent. So what does it mean that the self is the referent of every moment of our experience? What is a referent? You know, referent is the object of a conceptual consciousness. Sense consciousnesses have what we call an object of engagement. They actually engage their object, color, shape, sound, and so forth. But a conceptual consciousness does not engage any object directly, but it refers to objects. It can refer to objects that the senses can experience, like chairs and tables. We can think about them. Or we can think about things that there's no ways that our, our sense consciousnesses will ever experience, like unicorns and world peace, or time, or space. You know, so how do we how do we come to this understanding of what space is? How do we come to a shared understanding of what time and space are? And like we're able to communicate like what time it is. <laughs> anyway, um, 
you know, on the other hand, this is not for everyone. This this type of pursuit is clearly not for everyone, and it's uh, it, it, uh, it's very detailed and thorough, and uh, it can be laborious and onerous if you're not into it. So, it's no reason to suffer through it if it's not working for you. <laughs> any 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 other thoughts, Barbara? Anyone, Barbara? Oh. Thank you very much. It was it, what you said was, was very helpful. And um, I actually, um, it was something that I noticed tended to happen, not right at the beginning, but further in. But this particular book that we're working with this time, I like it very much. And I actually, I've enjoyed the readings so far. And, uh, I, do, and I think it's worthwhile. I really do so um good so so uh it's a matter of how do we get the most out of it then how do we approach it yeah what, and what, and, and just in sort of um i mean that's something you kind of just do on your own and you see when you notice that um sometimes we'll get stuck in 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 the conversation that just seems impossible you know on <laughs> But you can just on your own, just sort of pull back for a moment and and then come back to it. It you know you don't have to, um, you know, uh, get all uh, you know bent out of shape about that. So yeah, yeah, anyway, that's right. Thank you that's very good. much. Yeah, that's a good point. Not getting all bent out of shape is key. <laughs> <laughs> I think Laura had raised her hand first, and then Emily. I had a, a weird experience. I think it was after last week's class, I was walking the dogs in the woods and we had talked about the natives that didn't see the ship coming in because they couldn't mm. conceive of that. And so I was trying to just visualize the leaves and stuff as that, like what, what if there was absolutely no concept of that? And my mind got so blown because I saw a little glimpse of all the layers of concept and I was so frustrated because I thought I will never, ever get to that point where there's no, you know, there's so, so many layers of color and shape, and this is a leaf and this is a bark and, you know, and I got really frustrated. And then I thought, well, what a miracle that anybody ever reaches that, you know, how do we even get to this point that, that we know that there is something beyond that? Yeah, it's a real a miracle that somebody was able to pierce through it. Wow. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And uh, that, that's theoretically, you know, the, uh, the premise is that the Buddha did pierce through it. And, and, you know, what's our proof of that? We don't have any proof. We haven't met him. Uh, we can uh, read his teachings and uh, receive teachings from those who receive teachings from those who receive teachings, etc. And, uh, you know, see if those uh, explanations and teachings make sense. And uh, I think, that, you know, for me personally, uh, years and years of, of doing this is just like, uh, instead of ever feeling like I got it, <laughs> it's just like the range of the Buddha's wisdom, it just becomes more and more vast. And uh, 
some sometimes uh, it's helpful to read Mahayana sutras because uh, they they give you such a, a, an amazing picture of the vastness of the Buddha's mind, where uh, um, he he just presents the profundities of such uh, depth and variety. It's just hard to comprehend. But anyway, yeah, uh, that's neat having those experiences of uh, shifting. Um, there's, there's said to be this practice of uh, looking at the space between leaves. Instead of looking at the leaves, you look okay. at the space between right. leaves. <laughs> and that's apparently helps you in what's called seeing, seeing that um, we, t we focus on the forms and we immediately are making conceptual objects out of them. And we're designating, you know, so when we see a tree and its leaves, we think, oh, there's a, a cellulose plant there with whatever, and I'm calling that a tree. And really, and so this system that we're going through now says that our visual uh, apparatus creates an image of the tree internally. And that image looks like what we see. We see that image. We have no idea what that object actually looks like. Objectively, there's like no objective version of that tree. There's only the perception of that tree that lives in perceivers. And um, we have one version of that. And um, our conceptual mind that is part of our sixth consciousness. So the sixth consciousness sees the visual object. It sees the tree in a non-conceptual way. And then um, the, uh, the conceptual mind um, uses that image in the sense apparatus as the basis for designation. So we usually think, of well, the basis for designating a tree as being over there is the actual tree. It's not. It's one stage removed. The basis of designation of our conceptual mind is the sensory replica of whatever is out there. Anyway, thank you for that, Lori. Uh, Emily. Um, I just, can you guys hear me? I have weird, okay. Yeah, very good, actually. <laughs> good, good. Um, I just wanted to point out, you've kind of already touched on this, but in the reading, they emphasize applying the mind of equipoise and the meditative mind to this material and not just your sort of regular old logical mind. And I think that's so important to bringing in the big picture. I mean, when, like when I studied this material like this in college, it's very different or it's similar to when I sit down and read it, but then when I then meditate with that material sort of logged in my mind, that's really where for me, the kind of practitioner side of it and the bigger picture kind of lands. So I thought that was really an important takeaway from the reading and relevant to Barbara's question. Yeah, that's very relevant. Thank you. 
the difference between the hearing and the contemplating and the meditating on the in, on the material that we're studying you know reading it once and then like thinking about it throughout your day or through um pausing as you read and thinking about what you're reading and let it sink in contemplating as we talk about it in class and then when you meditate sort of revisiting the um the the explanation of reality basically all of the, all of the teachings of the buddha are explanations of experience and they're meant to be explanations of experience that lead us to nirvana and so our task is to experience them as such and understand how they lead us on and uh, cynthia well i just um what let's see what was it um what emily said also reminded me that i think one of the elements of the patience paramita has to do with sort of patience in regard to sort of grappling with the difficult subjects such as emptiness right so you in a way what you were describing sounded a little bit also like that you, that you have to kind of bring a particular not only particular aspect of mind but also you have to bring to bear that quality of uh, tolerance of what's difficult to understand and that, that they actually document that as one of the elements of the patience paramita that's great Explain and also oh, sorry and i was also going to say though you were describing about that space practice sounds a little bit like what they call negative space in the art world, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Um, explain, explain the term tolerance. Tolerance? You're asking me? You used it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it has various implications or meanings in English, you know. Oh, I, I guess... Um, is it like oh, I'm tolerating my mother, you know, when we go to visit her? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. It's it doesn't have that negative connotation um, of as opposed to intolerance of people per se. Uh, I think it just it more taps into this notion of just not being able. What do they say? Not being able to bear. You know, if we're. I mean, like um, the question that Barbara posed. In a way, it was you know it's when you bump into this frustration and difficulty with encountering the teachings. Um, so it's a question of how to sort of bear that um, without going into um, you know without getting stuck or going into negative reactions and things like that. I don't know. I don't know if I can really explain it off the. <laughs> yeah, another, another translation. It it's it's a translation of uh, patience, and there's uh, one other potential translation of patience that's endurance. <clears throat> so patience, <clears throat> tolerance, endurance, and it has this. The three of them ideally have this quality of um, bearing with things that are not like the entertaining preoccupations that we normally turn our mind towards that doesn't mean that they're necessarily things that are uh, painful or not painful so should we dive in 
Thank you for that. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Okay. So we're, uh, and so tonight, by the way, just a reality check. We read from 35 to 62. And uh, was that uh, viable for people? Did I get that right? Yes, 35. Science in what sense? Oh, I forgot to reread that. Uh, no wonder it took so, it was so fast. So, uh, is this a good amount of reading? Somebody complained that it wasn't enough, that we should have read the, the next section on reasoning, but... Okay, this was okay. No, good. That, that was enough. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I took my time. So. Yeah, it's good. It's good to not have too much and we can absorb it. So, on page 35, science in what sense? And a lot of this is repetitive of the Dalai Lama's introduction from last week, which I found to be a good thing as opposed to sort of onerous. Um, and in the middle of the first paragraph, the, the author, whoever that is, <laughs> says science in its original sense refers to knowledge about the natural world and the laws or principles that govern their behaviors, their behavior. Uh, what distinguishes this from other forms, even in the classical sense, is the grounding in empirical observation and its intersubjective nature. Such knowledge must be findable by others so long as they engage in the same method of inquiry. So we start with the uh, evidence of our experience and that's that's crucial as opposed to starting with some uh, handed down tablets that uh, apparently are said to carry the wisdom of god or the law word of god we start with our own experience compared to that of other people so experience that is commonly shared not that's unique to one person alone. Let's see the Abhidharma, Abhidharma background. Interesting on uh, page 36. Um, but a teaching for 40 years, everything coming from the Four Noble Truths, which by the way, the Buddha didn't come up with the Four Noble Truths. They were in one of the Vedas. And he repackaged it and made it his main presentation. And um, on the right-hand side of the page, on 37, that is, not the right-hand side of 38.6, but the right-hand side of 37. Uh, the, a characteristic feature of Abhidharma, the first full paragraph text, is their tendency towards taxon, taxonomic 
organization matrices. So matrices of, of topics. So theoretically, what the Abhidharma is, is that people, uh, the major students of the Buddha, or all of the students of the Buddha, would go through his sutra teachings, his discourses that he gave, either to specific individuals or groups of people, and came up with, sort of made lists of lists, like, what are the various lists the Buddha spoke of in this teaching and that teaching and how did he describe them and how did he use them and they compiled all these lists and they compared them and how do they fit with each other and uh, what is their purpose and uh, which ones are more important and less important they came up with a, a vast hierarchy of matrices so if you ever open up one of the classical uh, translations of one of the classical Abhidharma texts, they usually have charts. It's really a cool thing, not not something you would expect to see in a Buddhist text, but they have like these fold-out pages where there's like these charts, complicated charts. <laughs> it's very, very strange. Um, a dharma is an irreducible unit of reality with its own intrinsic nature, and the view of the world as being composed of irreducible dharmas came to be referred to as dharma theory. So that's a key aspect of this material, is the idea of dharmas as irreducible units of reality. And this, this factor of existence, so-called, is at the heart of the whole Abhidharma so-called project. The Abhidharma project thus entails a reductive analysis <clears throat> towards the end of that paragraph of the composite objects of our everyday experience into their constitutive elements. So we come to know our existence and our world as they really are, not as they appear to our naive perspective. And uh, I'm going to save the lists until we get into the past this little introduction because he's going to go through a whole bunch of them. And uh, he mentions on the bo very bottom of the page the Sarvastivada Abhidharma. Sarvastivada meaning uh, those who profess that all exist. And there are 75 dharmas. And. Um, the rest of the introduction if that's okay because it really just repeats the uh, chapter and rather get the go through it once so systems of classification part one on page 37 thank you for uh, 40 letters for those of us who are using ebooks 40 47 So sorry, systems of classification. Thank you for that reminder for you ebookers. <laughs> I will endeavor to, to state the, uh, the headers. So we're in systems of classification. When Indian, uh, ancient Indian texts present the topic of reality, they rely on numerous systems of classifications. And so we have a rundown of all these different classificatory systems. In the attainment of knowledge, this is one of the main Abhidharma texts of the seven Abhidharma texts in the original canon or compilation of the teachings of the Buddha of the early school. The 
There's two different versions of the Abhidharma, and they both have seven texts. Longchenpa also wrote seven treasuries. Seven is clearly a lucky number for Buddhists. And uh, the attainment of knowledge, and then its commentary, the great treatise on differentiation, which was called the Mahavibhasha Shastra, which supposedly is some huge compilation, some huge text that like pieces together all sorts of other texts in it. And I've never seen any translation of it, or even parts of it directly, but it's said to be the root source, and apparently exists in Chinese. But um, you see the word Vaibhasha, and so that's where we get the Vaibhasha, because those who um, cleave to the presentation of the Dharma, that's encapsulated in this huge compilation called the Mahavipasha Shastra. And here we have three groupings used to classify phenomena, and these are called the three skills. And these are like the, the essence of Abhidharma. And when we learn Abhidharma, like in Trump Rinpoche's world or comparable worlds, they focus on these three things, the five aggregates, the um, 18 elements, and the 12 bases. And uh, there's a reference to them having different purposes. And so uh, I want to show a little excerpt that I circulated by email that states what the different purposes of these are. And this is from a book called The Science of uh, uh, the Inner Science of Buddhism. What, what is the book called? Let's see. The Inner Science of Buddhist Practice. And it's a translation of Vasubandhu's text on the, the five skandhas with a commentary by Stiramati. We did a course on this book a number of years ago called The Essence of Abhidharma. You can find on the website. Why the heap species and constituents were taught. So immediately we get different terms. We had here aggregates. So heaps is an alternative translation. And then we have bases and constituents. On the book that we're looking at, we have aggregates, elements, and bases. So we have to be flexible that uh, these are translated in different ways. And um, so we have, uh, he, he asks, why teach these three different schemes? And uh, the answer is that the, the Buddha taught things for a specific purpose. And uh, the, the purpose is that these are antidotes for three types of belief in a self. Because it is not known what the three types of belief in a self are, what the topic was taught as the antidote for them, the root text states that the heaps and the rest were taught as antidotes, respectively, for the three types of belief in a self, which are the belief in, in a self as a unity, which I talked about a little bit, that we conglomerate different parts into, into whole things, units, unitary, belief that there's an experiencer of our world, and belief that there's an agent, that there's something in us that has um, uh, the ability to, uh, takes the role of deciding what to do and think and so forth. The, uh, the heaps, the, the aggregates were taught as an antidote for the belief in a unity. We break down the sense of self into the five aggregates. The bases, 
the, the uh, 12 bases were taught as an antidote for the belief in an entity that experiences. We believe that there's something apart from the eye and the ear and the nose and the tongue and the mouth and the coordinating mental factory that experiences all of those. And yet the Buddha presented, so the Buddha presented the 12 ayatanas to show us that all that's going on moment by moment is subject and object. And the subject is a consciousness, not a, not a, uh, not an experiencer. There's no separate experiencer of our sense experience. And the constituents, the 18 dodges were taught as an antidote for the belief in an agent. And going back to the book, um, so we have the five skandhas, first of all, conditioned phenomena. So conditioned phenomena does not include unconditioned phenomena. Unconditioned phenomena are things in this system are things like nirvana and space are said to be phenomena that are unconditioned. And nirvana, they don't really use the term nirvana, they, they call it the uh, cessation. And there are cessations that are brought about by the path. And then there are cessations that are brought about by the absence of um, productive causes, such as the cessation of a fire due to the, uh, the uh, absence of fire, uh, wood, or material. When, when external, so in the middle of page 37, when external and internal, uh, 47, sorry, 47, when external and internal phenomena are classified by means of object, sense, faculty, and consciousness, phenomena are presented in terms of the 18 elements and the 12 bases. <clears throat> the 18 elements consist of six objective elements, form, sound, and so forth, and mental objects. The six faculty elements that support consciousness, the eye sense faculty, ear sense faculty, and so forth. Um, and six subjective elements that are supported consciousness as eye consciousness and so on together, and mental consciousness together make up the 18 elements. Six sets of three, object, subject, uh, perceiver, and consciousness. The color, visual uh, sense faculty that resides in the eye and the visual consciousness that arises from it. Uh, when the term base, ayatana is applied as part of the classification system, all phenomena are categorized in 12 bases. Uh, skipping to the last sentence in these classification system, unconditioned phenomena which I just named, are included in the mental object element from the list of 18 elements and the mental object base in the enumeration of the 12 bases. Uh, so the object is, the objective or the goal is that all phenomena should be included in all three systems and all three uh, taxonomies, the five skandhas, and the 18 and the 12, and unconditioned phenomena are not included in the five skandhas. 
unconditioned phenomena do not come in heaps. But they are included in the uh, 12 ayatanas and the 18 datus, unconditioned phenomena. Neil? Why can't you squeeze them into consciousness in this kind <laughs> Because consciousness is conditioned. So when we when uh, in the five skandhas the, the consciousness is talking about the subject side and not the object side. Um, and then at the bottom of the page, alternatively in Vasubandhu's Treasury of Abhidharma, which is the main text for the Sautrantika school of Buddhism, which is the uh, slightly advanced version of Buddhist philosophy beyond the Vaibhashikas or the particularists or the atomists, the Sautrantikas are those who uh, cleave to the Sutra presentation. The following framework on top of page 48 of the five basic categories of reality. So we have another categorization, five basic categories of reality, not the same as the five skandhas, close but not the same, are one, evident material form, to primary minds. How many primary minds are there? One? Anyone else? Don't we each have one? <laughs> That's a great answer. Six. We all have six primary minds, one for each sense consciousness. Those are the primary minds. And the concomitant mental factors, such as the, the usual the common scheme that we're familiar with, is the 51, which comes from Vasubandhu. And then non-associative formative factors. And then lastly, unconditioned phenomena. So the first four are conditioned, and the last is unconditioned. And then we have a rundown of this categorization. Among all, according to this classification, all the external and internal physical phenomena, the five sense objects such as material form and so forth, and the five sense faculties such as the eye sense faculty are included in the basic category of evident material form. The phenomena that constitute the inner world of consciousness are subsumed in the two categories of primary minds and common and mental factors. Those conditioned phenomena that belong to neither the class of material form nor consciousness, such as the three attributes of conditioned phenomena, namely um, arising, enduring, and disintegrating, as well as the three times of past, present, and future, and so forth, encompass the basic category of non-associated formative factors. So these were considered phenomena actual phenomena, things, productive things. Finally, these phenomena, those phenomena that are not produced by cause and conditions are unconditioned. In this way, all noble objects are classified in these five. In Indian Buddhist, ah, Neil. I don't mean to take us back to what we covered before, but I was trying to figure out the, different, the exact difference between non-associated um, formations and unconditioned phenomena, and I thought it might be in terms of, but it's not in terms of performing a function because they both do. So is there an easy way to think of the difference? Um, well, the the main way is that there's no conditioning factors for the unconditioned phenomena. 
That's the term. Well, conditioning factors for space, for example. There's nothing that conditions it. There's no there's no mm -hmm. conditions that give rise to it. Or well, that's okay. I have trouble with that one. Okay. Well, which is uh, which is good because space is not a real thing. The the subs basically the Sautrantikas start to get there, and then uh, subsequent schools are very clear that space is not a real thing, a real phenomena. It's not even an unconditioned phenomena. It's just a filler, a, it's, a placeholder. It's a conceptual referent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. There's no phenomena space. It doesn't perform a function, and it's not observable. It doesn't perform a function. To Laurie's point, it, it pre performs exactly the function of stopping all the leaves being one thing. <laughs> it was a perceptual projection of the space between the leaves. But there isn't so just we do that, accommodation I... being a function? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll actually get to this topic in some detail but it's touched on in in this introduction in these readings for tonight it was under the the uh it was called um unobserved phenomena reasoning based on unobserved phenomena and um we you know, to conclude that something that is unobserved exists is not a correct conclusion. That's not like if the tree falls in the wood and nobody sees it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's different. But I love this, this uh, uh, discussion about space. That space, space, that space actually performs a function. There were many early Buddhists that, that did believe that space accommodates and it performs the function of accommodating. And uh, so is space produced. All phenomena that perform a function are things and all things are produced and they're impermanent. Is space produced and impermanent? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's very fleeting. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a moment in the morning when you wake up yeah. and then it's gone. <laughs> okay, but good. You know, uh, these sort of things in this tradition, they're like, this is good to, they call it debate upon, upon it, which is a little bit exaggerated, but we should debate that. You know, we should argue that and, you know, um, go through it in a structured way. You know, what is space and in what way can we say, is it a phenomena or not? You know, and I, so I responded with the definition of uh, phenomena as being produced and impermanent and said, you know, a space that, Jill. I was just wondering, it, you know, a, a term that is used quite a bit for the nature of reality is vast. And I don't see how vast and space are that different. <laughs> well, vast is an adjective as opposed yep. to a noun, right? Yes. You know, spacious is, is... Yes, but vast to me, I guess vast has an implication of, of scope or of, of, of area, mm -hmm. of, of 
breadth of of long of dimension dimensionality but then when you have dimensions then you're talking about a thing more likely I, so i think that that's actually the difference going back to some of what derek's been saying of, between you know like you could imagine a vast ocean very very big but it still has limits um you know it still has edges that we can't see or whatever whereas the um space is, may go beyond that <clears throat> ability to um define in terms of of uh coordinates so to speak <laughs> but this is a phenomenon it's just unconditioned but it's, it's also true that we use those two terms both as a way of trying to expand the mind and talk about vastness of mind, spaciousness of mind. They, they do get used in very similar ways. Good. So um, continuing along, next paragraph, an Indian Buddhist text on epistemology, which is the study of how we know. The presentation of reality is framed in terms of three topics, the objects of knowledge, phenomena, the mind that knows, and the way the mind engages objects. So it's a lot more practical. It's not as theoretical. You see the difference, the first two schemes of the, of the, of, uh, the five skandhas and the 12 bases and the 18 dhatus on the one hand, and then the five-fold scheme in Vasubandhu's system is based on the, like just a categorization of phenomena that we think inhabit our reality, our universe. But <clears throat> the epistemological framework is much more about, <clears throat> excuse me, how conceptuality happens, how the mind works, understanding that, that is the main focus. And so the objects are primarily an exercise in developing clarity of understanding how we experience them. So these three things. And he says in the mind only school, in contrast, their scheme is the three natures, dependent, perfect, and uh, imputed. And then in the middle way or Madhyamaka school, phenomena are presented in terms of the basis, the two truths, the relative and the absolute or ultimate, the path comprising method, skillful means and wisdom, cultivating merit and wisdom, and the result, the truth, body, dharmakaya, and the form body, the uh, rupakaya of a Buddha. In those of Tantra, the presentation is presented in terms of ground, the nature of reality, the stages of proceeding on the path and how the result is actualized. So there's different formats employed in, in, in these many different systems to present the nature of reality. And this two volume compendium, these two first two volumes of the four of this series, we have organized our presentation of reality in terms of five major themes. The presentation of noble objects, which is the focus of this volume, the presentation of the cognizing mind, how the mind engages its objects, the means by which the mind ascertains objects. And these two, three and four, are very similar. And it's a little bit odd why they separate them, but there is a reason for it, and we'll come to that. And then uh, 
Number five is the presentation of the person agent who ascertains objects, which is not a common separate division, but it's something that uh, they have done that uh, I think deserve, uh, deserves uh, merit or is with merit. What are the uh, what are the sources? There are a vast number of Indian Buddhist treatises. Which ones have you chosen? Now here we go through a, just a, basically a list of texts, which may or may not be of interest to people. So assuming that uh, it's not of that much interest, I'm going to sort of I'll skip through it. Uh, but the main the main sources just to focus in um, for this volume the main sources are sangha's compendium of abhidharma abhidharma kosha sorry abhidharma samuchaya and its commentaries and then vasubandhu's abhidharma kosha and we see reference to those as the uh, higher and lower abhidharma a song is said to be the higher abhidharma you see that reference in the, these readings and Vasubandhu's is the lower Abhidharma system. And it just refers to uh, uh, the lower schools and the higher schools of Buddhism that Vasubandhu and uh, Asanga represent in their presentation of Abhidharma respectively. Neil. All right, just jumping back to on page uh, 48, when they suddenly start talking about an Indian Buddhist text on epistemology. Hmm. Um, up to that point, we were talking about Buddhist texts that were essentially ontological. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a reason to worry about any distinction there, or are we still just basically talking about how we understand reality? Uh, not, nothing to worry about, but to appreciate <laughs> that we're shifting from ontology to epistemology because uh, we're basically uh, coming from the Mahayana schools where the emphasis is on how we're ignorant and how we can become wise and that's based on understanding how we experience phenomena as opposed to just what the phenomena are so that's the emphasis the shifting and emphasis in the in the earlier schools there was this idea that that uh nirvana and samsara are real things and obstacles to enlightenment are real and if we identify the obstacles in a very clunky ontological way, we can like uh, escape from the obstacles and the obstructions to uh, liberation and achieve liberation. And uh, there's a shift in the Mahayana schools towards uh, that liberation is a different way of experiencing our world as opposed to experiencing a different world. And the Abhidharma, Nirvana is experiencing a different world, Nirvana as a as sort of a place. Uh, so yeah, that's a big shift. Uh, the, the next paragraph regarding the presentation on the subject of mind, we draw on primarily from a Sangha's uh, five treatises, his, uh, five treatises on the grounds, and this is not the five texts of Maitreya, but this is, uh, he wrote five 
Bumi's text with the word Bumi in it, which is translated as ground. He wrote the Shravaka Bumi and the Bodhisattva Bumi and the Yogacara Bumi, and there are two other Bumi's that I can't remember that make up the five Bumi's, all of which together are put together as the Yogacara Bumi. Um, and then Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge and its auto-commentary and the works of Dignog and Dharmakirti. And um, interesting, though, that I, 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 let me go back to the, the chapter, the paragraph rather above the sources for this volume where he, he states um, also text by Bhava Viveka. Uh, where, as, as you said, uh, objects of knowledge is basically an ontological system taken from the point of view of an epistemological system, but it's looking at the nature of the objective world. And uh, so we have views on that from different masters of different, uh, who have different takes on that. Vasubandhu. Bhavaveka, Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, Chandrakirti, who we see are famous authors on the nature of reality. Whereas Dharmakirti and Dignaga are the main uh, gentlemen in the world of how do we know? How do we know what we know? And on the bottom of this page 49, Mental Factors, Presentation of Mental Factors is compiled from the texts of the Upper and Lower Abhidharma systems, which I just described, and with regards to the levels of subtlety of mind in terms of the notion of coarse and subtle minds contingent on the subtlety of the mental states of higher and, and lower realms of existence, we rely on the Upper and Lower Abhidharma, as well as the works of the Yogacara school, relevant works, and as for the levels of subtlety of mind, the stages of dissolution of wind of mind, stages of death, and so on, from the highest yoga tantra system, we draw principally from the corp textual corpus of the Guya Samaja Tantra, which is the main tantra of the new traditions of Buddhism in Tibet, as well as the cycle of texts belonging to the Kala Chakra system. In terms of how the mind engages objects, so these three, this triad, of objects, subjects, and how they interact. And when they say how they interact, it's really how subjects interact with objects. We've used the sources from the Yogacara texts of Asanga and his folks, and also, um, in particular, the Shravaka grounds, Shravaka Bhumi. And we've also used the Sutra, Unraveling the Intention Sutra, the Samdhi Nirmoshana Sutra. And I've focused on the meditation chapter in that Sutra, but that Sutra also is famous for presenting the three natures for the first time. And uh, in particular, we've also utilized specific texts, these specific texts, Shantideva's Bodhicharvatara, as well as his compendium of training, Shiksha Samuchaya, both of which are available in translation in English. Dharmakirti's uh, exposition of valid cognition, which is not available in entirety in English, and Kamala Shila's stages of meditation, which we've looked at a number of times. Finally, in the presentation of the person, one who ascertains, we've drawn from treatises such as the middle school. 
methods of inquiry, critical analysis, and the four reliances in our time is short. So first we have, or we revisit the image of uh, how, um, such as uh, someone might test gold by burning and cutting and polishing it, that famous analogy. And uh, in Buddhist texts, on the bottom of the page, in Buddhist texts in general, and those of the Nalanda thinkers in particular. And remember from last week, we had this mentioned by the Dalai Lama of uh, the, that we were following the Nalanda uh, University tradition and, this, and the masters of the Nalanda tradition, starting with Nagarjuna and Aryadeva and so forth. Everybody remember Nagarjuna's dates? Like 150 to 250 of the common era, right? So then we have here, um, uh, let's see, how do I do a screen share of the internet? Oh, here we go. Wikipedia, Nalanda. Nalanda was a renowned, it's a little bit small, renowned Buddhist monastic university in ancient uh, Magadha, modern day Bihar in India, blah, 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 blah. Nalanda played a vital role in promoting the patronage of arts and academics during the fifth and sixth century. Sorry, the chapter bef sentence before. It operated from 427 to 1197. So <laughs> you gotta be skeptical. Nagarjuna was long dead unless you believe that he lived for six hundreds of years. Um, the bottom of the page in Buddhist texts in general knows the Nalanda thinkers, in particular when a specific issue is analyzed. Greater importance is accorded to direct experience compared with logical reasoning and scripture. If, if one were to take scripture as the sole authority, you know, so we're talking about what's an authority for what is the true view of reality in the Buddhist tradition? Is it scripture? Is it um, something else? Is it valid cognition? Is it valid cognition or is it inference? There's those three choices. And he dispenses with uh, scriptures because uh, it's an um, it's an internally oriented system where one scripture supports, they all support each other, but there's no external validation. But there is this process of validating one scripture by another. Um, furthermore, on this, the next paragraph, we're to investigate the treatises composed by eminent Nalanda thinkers. We find that readers should approach such works on the basis of critical inquiry pertaining to the subject matter, not through faith and, conv faith and conviction. When positive doubts have arisen, so there's two types of doubt, positive doubt and negative doubt. Um, and, and positive doubt has different types, presumably, and one type is that is doubt tending to the fact, where we pres you're presented with the idea of egolessness at some point when you enter into the world of Buddhism, and at first you're like, what? That's ridiculous. But then you're like, 
huh, what do they mean by that? And well, oh, maybe, you know, so that's doubt. You doubt the Dharma, but then you begin to have, you explore that doubt. And so the doubt actually propels you into the Dharma. And, and then the doubt turns on the relative, our belief in the relative world is real. And we're like, huh, is that really the way, does that really exist the way I think it does? So doubt is a positive thing as opposed to doubt that is a type of doubt where we get, we're stuck. When positive doubt has arisen, this is the stage when one engages the subject matter of the treatise. These thinkers also say that if a subject is presented in terms of five elements of exposition, so they tell you how you should expose, 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 ex, write, compose. How about that? <laughs> compose text. They tell you uh, you got to do this and that. You have the purpose, a summary. You have to have a, a word meeting and uh, objections and rebuttals, and there's got to be markers that establish the the. Uh, can, connection between earlier and later sections of the text. So you all have to observe these. These are the uh, Chicago rules of, of uh, whatever they're called. Right. And then we go into the four reliances, which we talked about quite a lot. On the very bottom of 53, rely on the definitive, meaning not the provisional. Come in over to the page 54. Um, to recognize those statements of the Buddha whose literal meaning can be undermined by logical reasoning to be instructions given to help his followers. That's sort of a radical statement that teachings made by the Buddha can be undermined by logical reasoning. Such teachings, though not presenting the Buddha's final intention, were taught for the sake of others for a specific purpose. And we've had a course on this whole topic of uh, distinguishing provisional and definitive teachings. and and uh, what the means are, the various means, and the, uh, and then uh, lots of examples. In contrast, those statements whose literal meaning cannot be undermined by logical reasoning, those that express the ultimate nature of reality representing the Buddha's final attention, one should trust is definitive in their meaning. And finally, transcendent wisdom, not on ordinary consciousness, means that when one seeks the definitive meaning, which is the third reliance, one should not place confidence in ordinary, in one's ordinary sensory cognition, such as eye consciousness, nor should one trust what appears to the mental conception, the mental conceptual consciousness, a cognition that is mistaken with respect to the ultimate nature of reality. Conceptual consciousness has a, a conceptual referent as its object. It doesn't have reality as its object. Now, when we study emptiness, we develop a conceptual idea of emptiness and we refine it until it becomes very subtle and ideally it becomes a springboard to, towards experiencing reality directly and non-conceptually. But it is still a conceptual object and therefore it's mistaken in terms of its, uh, with respect to the nature of, the ultimate nature of reality. So instead, which should generate conviction either in the non-conceptual transcendent wisdom of sublime beings who see the way things really are, or in the rational cognition understanding suchness that gives rise to that transcendent wisdom. The rational 
the rational cognition understanding suchness so that's rational cognition is cognition that's the culmination of uh, inferential valid inferential understanding that's focused on the true nature of reality and that's based on factual experience uh, jill this is just where I was getting tripped up earlier because um, because it after because it, because in my ignorance right my current state of development I have to take the words of other more enlightened beings on faith right and and I can try to test them as much as I like but I am limited by my ignorant, you know, by the my lack of ability to perceive things as they really are. That, you know, you know, I found that I found this a little bit uh, complicated because. Okay, I, well, let, let me uh, <laughs> let me respond with two things. One is that I sort of glossed over this this use of scriptures, but your statement of like faith in what sub, sub, what is it sublime beings or something have. Uh, presented to you to us in, enlightened be, you know enlightened more. beings right so what what's presented on the top of 52 is a method of using uh, the teachings of the buddha sutras or the shastras of uh, the great masters of india and tibet as a support for our development of this so-called rational cognition of suchness is that we we study these texts and they all mention different um, experiences that we all have. They start with experiences of the, the bare phenomenal world in a way that we experience them. And then they build their argument. They build their, their, uh, their progression towards true understanding on that basis. And so you gain confidence in, their, in, the, in the basis of their arguments by having a direct experience in that. And then they say, well, because of that X, Y, and Z, and you're like, okay I, I i'm there i understand that and then they go a little further and then you're like well that's a leap of faith and then you continue your study both of the texts and of your experience you study your experience and then you come back to the text or another similar text or supporting text and you say oh i get that now and you gradually build like this this staircase that leads to a higher and higher or more subtle and subtle level of rational cognition and the main thing that you're doing is you're building a diving board that gets you to the point where you're you're willing to dive off into the world of non-conceptual experience and you're able to and those are two different things and um the willingness is a uh, is a matter of like confidence in your understanding and your ability to not lose it when you let go of your reference points and then the the ability is to what extent have we exhausted our conceptual mind and and uh, are able to then glimpse the non-conceptual experience that's there all the time and so we all have this non-conceptual being operating in us all the time and we can just periodically stop and let it emerge. And we can't feel it because the, the, uh, the subject of we is the conceptual mind. And so the conceptual mind can't 
experience the non-conceptual mind. It can think about it, it can dream about it, it can write stories about it, it can write letters to it. And that's, you know, that's what a lot, like Sufi poetry is you're like, you're writing a letter to your non-conceptual self. There's no self there, but to that world. And that's what a lot of uh, texts are. They're like aspiring towards that. And it's there all the time. And there's generally the past goes about by thinking that we're, we're making progress towards it when really the only way to get there is to let go of doing. Well, and I wanted just, I'm so sorry to, to um, come back, but the, um, so on in building this ladder, it seems like there's so many opportunities for our conceptual mind to create false views, right? Or to build a conceptual model and think that we are getting closer to something when we're in fact, you know, making it more complicated. Anyway, I've experienced that. So, um, so uh, any advice on doing that, especially when you're dealing with texts like these that are very concept filled? Yeah, yeah. What, what you do, what I find helpful is that for one, you have like a, a reminder that's with you all the time that ideally goes off like on your phone, you put a little reminder um, that says whenever you're conceptualizing, it goes off. It says you're conceptualizing. So as you're reading and you're understanding and you're developing a sophisticated understanding, at the same time that reminder is going off and saying, oh, you're, you're building your further conceptual understanding. And then you decide to what extent is that conceptual understanding helpful in shifting the, the way your conceptual world works to obscure you and ensnare you in conceptuality and then repeatedly uh, trying to flash the gap you know to be sort of crude and use the lingo of Trump Rebuche, you know experiencing the gap and ideally the, the experience of gap gets more and more sophisticated as we understand more and more what the non-gap is, if that makes sense. And the non-gap clearly is the world of conceptual structure. And the gap is our non-conceptual experience world. Thank you, thanks. So, oh, and, and, you know, just to realize that we're always, we're getting more and more subtle with self-deception and spiritual materialism, as Trump Rinpoche would put it, is like, we're getting ever more subtle and advanced and, you know, wonderful understanding of the nature. And as you, like, impress yourself with that, you immediately have to realize that it's not the real thing. It's, but it, it is a ladder, you know, and that's, that was one of the advances of the Yogacara school is they, the Madhyamakas were like, well, it's black and white. There's confusion in the relative world and there's enlightenment, suchness, shunyata. And there's never the twain shall meet. And the Yogacaras were like, well, you can, you can get closer conceptually to what reality is conceptually. And that might be helpful to spring you off into the non-conceptual world. That depends on how you take it. You can get, it can ensnare you further 
if you're not careful about you can become you know to to use one image like a puffed up professor you know and know it all is like uh you know i understand it all and you get just like more solidified and it doesn't it doesn't you know so nagarjuna is like those who are simple folk are stupid but are are un, you know uneducated but those who believe in emptiness are hopeless because you can't help them if somebody actually believes they know what emptiness is it's their loss anyway chris yeah just even if you have a non-conceptual transcendent experience you still need that ladder because you may have that experience but you're just like what was that and so you need to go back and validate so no matter which direction you approach so it is kind of it's a ladder but you're going up and down it and you still need that ladder to validate what was that I, and, I, and I if agree. you don't have this struck these structures no matter where they come from you're lost yeah we really you know, just go back to the conceptual mind and there's different ladders you know this yeah. is one type of ladder and there's different traditions that have other types of ladders and and uh Ideally, they're helpful ladders. So let's see. Um, we have three types of phenomena and then four principles, which are the most important parts of the reading. And we have one minute for each. <laughs> but they're very simple, and we've been through them before, so it'll be no problem. <laughs> Not use up precious seconds saying that. But the three types of phenomena are called evident phenomena perceptible phenomena that we experience through our senses, colors, sounds, and so forth, tastes. Those are the objects of our sensory experience, the world of sense experience, through the ayatanas and datus and so forth. And then there's slightly hidden phenomena, things that we can figure out with logical reasoning, the proverbial fire on the other side of the mountain where we see the smoke and we're like, oh shit, there's another fire. Here in, uh, in, the, in the Midwest or the West. And then extremely hidden phenomena are things like the workings of karma, like why, did, why does karma lie dormant for aeons and then suddenly appear? Only a Buddha can see these things. So there's these three levels of phenomena. And uh, evident phenomena are the object of our valid sense con uh, cognition non-conceptual sense cognition and slightly hidden phenomena are the objects of our conceptual inferential logical understanding not our mistaken conceptual mind but our correctly understanding conceptual mind and then extremely hidden phenomena are the object of omniscience then we have analysis grounded in the four principles. And the, the idea is that the first three principles are the different aspects of reality from a very simple um, early Buddhist point of view that phenomena have an, uh, a nature as being this or that. And that nature has a function like fire is hot, its function is it burns. And then it's dependent. It has a dependency. And there's different types of dependency that we'll get into probably not tonight. Uh, but 
phenomena, the phenomenal world, the evident world, going back to the left side of these two pages, uh, page 56, the evident world has these three principles, nature, function, and dependence on a very uh, conventional world level. And then the fourth one is based upon the observation of those three principles, we can develop logical reasonings. And so when we get into the science of logical reasoning, there's three types of evidence. A logical statement involves the subject, i.e. an object, a thing, and then a hypothesis about that thing, and then a supporting reason. And the reasons are of three types. They're either of nature type, it's the nature of a phenomena, or it's the function of a phenomena, or it's uh, the uh, structure of that phenomena's dependent relations. And those are the three types of reasons. And they, they all three occur in the positive sense, where you say, well, this does, uh, is observable. I can observe the nature or the, the uh, function or the dependence, and therefore I can conclude something. Or it can be in the opposite. It can be from the absence. Because there's no fire presence, therefore there's no smoke or heat or whatever. And so those, that's the structure of logical reasoning right there is, is that it's based on these three, what they're called evidence or fact. The technical term often used is fact. And so we have reasoning based on fact, not reasoning based on hearsay or scripture. Um, I think that pretty much is the four principles and causality and dependent origination, just briefly, maybe we'll go a few minutes late, is that we have three uh, types of dependent originality, uh, origination, originality. It's not very original, is it? Um, let's see. First he goes through interdependent origination and on pages 58 and 59. And he sums that up nicely on page 60. In, in brief, in the Buddhist tradition, he gives this list with uh, bullet points. One cannot accept that an effect arises without a cause. I thought this was a very handy list. One cannot assert that the cosmos originates from the prior design of a creator. The arising of things from a permanent cause is illogical. Cause and effect must be commensurate. It's an interesting term. And we'll get into causes and effects and dependency further in this first volume. We'll go through it in detail. Specific results arise from specific causes that the fact that specific results arise from specific causes is the nature of reality and cannot be otherwise. You plant barley seeds and you get barley plants instead of apple trees. The relationship of cause and effect is a natural state of phenomena and effects arise from various causes and conditions due to the law of dependent origination. And then lastly, let's see, reasoning with the laws of contradiction and relation. Um, 
And this goes back to the the four, uh, let's see, so this is the last couple of pages of our reading. Um, somewhere, and I seem to have missed it, he goes through different types of uh, dependency. And there's three types of dependency. One is causal dependency. The phenomena are dependent upon their causes and conditions. And the other is um, ontological cause uh, dependence. The phenomena are dependent upon their parts. It's the last paragraph of page 60. Thank you, Neil. And, um, and then the third type of uh, dependency is dependency on conceptual designation, that concepts are dependent upon the process of conceptual designation, which uh, operates by method of exclusion of opposites of what we're trying to identify, which is this idea of apoha in Sanskrit that we touched on last week, of how conceptual mind operates to identify the referent object of its cognition, it eliminates what is not the object that is trying to be cognized conceptually. And that's, that's one part of the conceptual designation process. And the other part of the conceptual designation process I talked about earlier is that conceptual designation is the designation of an idea upon a basis we perceive some basis that's called the basis of designation. And the basis exists within our consciousnesses. That's where the basis of designation is. The way that we experience the external world is the basis of designation, not the actual external world. We think, oh, upon the, the different um, arms and legs and body parts I'm seeing in front of me, I'm designating a person. No, it's based on the perception of those that occur in my mind stream. I'm designating a person. And then uh, lastly, is this idea of uh, relationships that's gonna be used throughout this volume and uh, more in the next volume, I think, of the different ways that I phenomena can be compared to each other. And let's see. Now we didn't get to our classification schemes tonight, but that's fine. Um, the four relationships. So things are either identical and they, uh, they uh, occupy the same Zen di Venn diagram, <laughs> Zen diagram, <laughs> or one one type of phenomena is included in the other phenomena, and uh, two and three here are, are the same. They're just like flipping what's included and in what, or they're overlapping. Some of that group is included in some of the this other category, or they're totally unrelated phenomena. And these are very simplistic diagrams and ways of looking at phenomena, but they end up being extremely subtle and, and complicated and confusing when we get into the nuances of, of, of the different aspects of our 
natural world, the objective world. And uh, lastly here, somewhere, I circulated a really nice nifty little chart that uh, must have got lost here. Hold on. So this is our collected topics. There's objects, subjects, methods, and this should say that lead to cognition of subjects, objects and subjects. And uh, Collected topics focuses on the object side primarily, and it divides objects in terms of their entity and in terms of how they're taken as objects. And then in terms of entity, phenomena are divided into non-things and things, and things are classified in terms of their entity or their ontological nature and their function. And in terms of their entity, phenomena are classified as either matter, consciousness, or non-associated formation. And in terms of their function as either causes, conditions, or results. And let's see, we'll go back to our chance here. Any last comments, suggestions, questions? Mary Beth. So on that chart that you just showed us, the entity side is more sort of like the ontological view of we have to change our world or our, our experience. And then the other one is the function. Is that more like relating to the epistemology that it's like more how we experience our world? Mm, well, I don't, I don't know that we're going to change our world. Well, just that, like that thing that you said about uh, we're we're trying to experience a different world. I think that's what it was, like on right. right. That's in the in the in the Vibhashika system, and to some extent in the Sautrantika system, they're trying to um, experience the unconditioned world. So they're trying to put all conditioned factors to rest. And that's how they define the achievement of nirvana is the blowing out of the candle is the image and the image is meant to represent the exhaustion of the operative uh, force of all conditioned phenomena. So they actually um, leave the world of conditioned phenomena and enter the world of unconditioned reality as if those were real two different and real phenomena. And so they identify what are the, the phenomena of the real world and, and, and in which ones of those are helpful on the path and which ones are harmful. So we have the virtuous mental factors, we have the non-virtuous ones, you know, and so they try very hard not to let the non-virtuous ones arise and to cultivate the virtuous ones and accumulate uh, the, the uh, necessary conditions for the cessation of all karmic activity of the skandhas. But uh, from our point of view, we're looking at this from much more the Yogacara point of view, which is focused on how we experience phenomena. 
and and with the the premise that by changing the way we experience phenomena we change we can go from samsara to nirvana just by virtue of shifting our perception as opposed to changing places well, thank you and uh, and so it's it's still helpful to identify the different various vast range of the phenomenal world the objective world but it's not quite as a, a sort of life and death so to speak those the, the entities of the phenomenal world we view them all as objects of knowledge whether they're helpful or harmful and the focus is more on understanding what are the methods that lead to cognition of subjects and objects and thereby can cultivate valid conceptual understanding that can be supportive of the experience of non-conceptual experience of the, the true nature of reality and function function are just it's just the, the different aspects of the natural world so both function and matter and sorry and entity are are in the worlds of uh of uh objects and are not not uh, necessarily one helpful one way or another in terms of enlightenment it's helpful to understand how they function together i think i maybe went around in circles there <laughs> but uh to some extent it'll be clearer when we go through them as well and you'll see like how we go through the topics and how uh, how they're meant to be understood and helpful. What else? Anything else? Shall we conclude? The concluding chant. Uh, here we go. Sorry. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth of old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to Thank see you. you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, everybody. Thank Thanks, you, Derek. Have a good night. Have a great week. Good Thank night. you. You too. Take care. Bye.